Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. And my guest today is Brent Johnson of the Santiago Gold Fund, Santiago AU Fund. Now, always fun having Brent on the show. We covered a ton of ground today, obviously focused on the US dollar. I, I tease Brent a bit because he's usually the one US dollar bull in a room full of bears, but he outlines this case extraordinarily well and brings a lot of relativity and calm logic to finance, to macro in general. So I always love catching up with Brent. Now he'll be at my show in January in Vancouver, British Columbia, the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Tickets are on sale now. We've got over 70 keynote speakers taking one of six stages over the course of two days and over 300 junior mining companies in the trade show. Check out tickets right now at cambridgehouse.com. And if you want to do this show in style, pick up one of our VIP tickets, which gets you the best seats in the house in our main speaker hall, hosted lunches on both days. It gets you a ticket to the exclusive keynote speaker cocktail night on Sunday night. That's January 21st. And so you want to meet Brent or Danielle DiMartino Booth or Rick Rule or any of the Adam Taggart, any of the 60 keynote speakers that we're bringing out to the show, uh, pick yourself up a VIP ticket. We don't sell very many, I think like 70. So they, they do sell out. So get in there if you want to do the show in style. And if not, get yourself a general admission ticket at cambridgehouse.com, January 21st and 22nd in Vancouver, BC. Here is Brent Johnson. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Brent Johnson, who has come on the show to discuss the impending collapse of the U.S. dollar system today. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. Let's In do it. In a couple it. days, probably. <laughs> well, you know, over the last two days, there's a lot of people thinking that it, that it's on deck now, so it's probably a good time to talk about it. Well, we'll talk about that. Let's let's start with this. So. Uh, I saw some headlines last week and one from a Citigroup analyst who was forecasting, you know, the likely need for $20 trillion in new debt over the coming decade. But the significance of this is he said, now clients are beginning to ask questions like who's going to buy all these treasuries and how much debt is too much questions that he hadn't heard before. So first question, like, is that a conservative or a sensational estimate, 20 trillion new debt over the coming decade? And who is going to buy those treasuries and how much debt is too much? Yeah. So I think, I don't think it's, I think that's probably a good number could probably be low to be honest. I mean, I expect debts to explode, um, but I don't just expect it to happen in the United States. I expect debt to continue going up everywhere. And, you know, I think that's, that's, that's really what my whole thesis has been about is how do you prepare for and think about and allocate during a sovereign debt crisis, which is what I think all of this debt will eventually cause. Now, I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, I thought it would have happened by now and it hasn't. Um, but the other thing I would say is that my whole thesis and my whole framework it doesn't say that you should just be sitting in cash in dollars waiting for this magnificent, you know, cratering of the global economy to happen. I think everybody should be invested and have a plan to be invested because over time, fiat currency loses value. But when you get into this situation where the debts have exploded in the U.S., but also outside the U.S., and once you understand that the design of the system where money gets loaned into existence and therefore you have always have a danger of deflationary shocks if these debts don't get paid you have to have a plan to kind of be prepared for these dramatic drawdowns along the way and so you know i 
thought that we would have, and we, we listen, we've largely had that assets have gone up and to the right over the last four or five years, but there's been two or three dramatic drawdowns along the way. And that, that's kind of what I thought would happen. And that's, that's basically what's happened. And, you know, the dollar's gotten stronger over that time period, but we haven't had this super spike in the dollar and we haven't had this lasting crisis that kind of rolled from one country to another. I still think that's likely. And I still think you need to be prepared for it, but it just hasn't happened yet. And so, you know, what, what do you think happens next then, Brent? Like, if you're a bit surprised by market activity today, uh, and are you, you know, this rally in the broad equities well, market, dollar performance? So I, I'm not surprised that the dollar has pulled back, and I'm not surprised that equities have rallied. I'm a little bit surprised. And I'm when I'm not just over the last two days, but I'm talking more like over the last six weeks. I think directionally, that's the correct move. You know, as, as the expectation for tight monetary policy in the United States falls and the expectations for rate cuts to start to rise, you would expect there to be some weakness in the currency. Mm. But I think the magnitude of the move has both in the dollar and in equities has gotten way ahead of itself. And, and so directionally, I think it's correct. It's just the, the, from a magnitude perspective, I think everything is kind of priced to perfection. The, the point I would make is let's fast forward three or four months. Let's pretend we're in March or April now or May whatever, and we've got a Fed meeting and markets are higher than they are now. We haven't had a crisis. Markets have held up. They're even higher now than they were then. Number one, if markets are still high, why would Powell cut? Right. If things if things are going fine, what what's the what's the big rush for him to cut and risk inflation reigniting? So that's one thing. The other thing is that let's say we get to March or April or May, whatever it is, and he does cut. Well, everybody expects him to cut. So what's unless at that meeting he announces several more cuts, why would the markets go higher at that point? Because again, I think I think everything is already priced as if all of these cuts either have taken place or are getting ready to take place very quickly. And so, again, I understand the movements that the markets have made. I think they've gotten way ahead of themselves. I think people, I think largely people have forgotten that currencies can move for reasons other than, <clears throat> excuse me, other than rate hikes and rate cuts. You know, over the last two years, currencies have largely moved on monetary policy, rate hikes, rate cuts. But if if you remember... From like 2012 to 2018, there were no rate hikes anywhere. Right? We just had, you know, rates at zero all over the world and currencies made big moves. And so currencies can move for reasons other than rate hikes. Now, rate hikes are a big one and monetary policy is a big one, but they can move for other reasons as well. And so I would say for part of the reason that I would, this is where it gets a little ironic is that one of the reasons that the Fed would be cutting is if the economy is slowing. And if the economy is slowing, then why would asset prices still be going higher? In other words, they're the market is kind of giving him the soft landing that nobody thought he could do because they're trying to front run his next move. But, but in my mind, the reason that he would either be cutting aggressively or even going back to some kind of QE or stopping QT would be if there was a crisis. But if there's a crisis, equities aren't going to be at their highs. So again, you would kind of have to have a pullback hard in risk assets, in my opinion, 
to then for him to then justify all these hikes that they now think are going to happen. And if the Fed is now, and I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but but if if the Fed is now forecasting several hikes, what do they see that the market doesn't? Because if if the if if the Dow is going to be at forty thousand and the S and P is going to be at five thousand come March, mm-hmm. and unemployment is still at three and a half percent, why on earth would they be cutting, right? Mm-hmm. And financial conditions now are as loose as they've been. So again, I think he, I just think the the market has a little bit of cognitive dissonance, and the, the, I think they're getting cause and effect a little bit messed up. So, and the other thing I would say is <clears throat> right now. Markets don't move in a straight line forever. And so I'll give you an example. So back in October, last week of October, sentiment on equity. So, you know, we we had a big run up in equities all year. And then in August and September, equities had a pretty hard pullback. And at the end of October, um, I think the Dow was actually down for the year one or two percent. The 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 Russell was down a couple percent. The the SP was maybe up one or two percent. The Nasdaq was up a lot because of mainly because of the seven stocks, but largely asset prices were kind of flat to even down a little bit year to date at the end of October. And sentiment had gotten very low in equities. And on one of uh, we have our own podcast and on that podcast, uh, my 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 co-host John and I were talking about it. And I said, you know, coming out of the Fed meeting the first week of November, it wouldn't surprise me if we get a little bit of a bounce for two or three weeks, because I think he probably won't be super hawkish. And everything is kind of really oversold now. Mm-hmm. And so the pendulum had swung very bearish, I guess is my point. In a yeah. very short period of time, the pendulum had swung bearish in October. And so I said, markets don't just go down in a straight line. We'll probably get a bounce for two or three weeks. And we did. And, and that didn't shock me at all. The, the the continual bounce over the last three weeks has surprised me a little bit. I'm the first to, to admit I did not expect it to kind of melt up like this. But now, sentiment now is higher on the positive side than it was to the low side at the end of October. So in six weeks, we've had a dramatic swinging of the pendulum all the way from not quite extreme bearish in October, but getting pretty close. But now it's swung all the way back up to extreme bullish. And the VIX is at 12, which is as low as it's ever been. And financial conditions are as loose as they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And the put call ratio is as low as it's ever been. And the RSI and the DSI, all these sentiment indicators and relative strength indicators on risk assets are as high as they've been. So to me, I don't know what's going to happen next year, but I I think, I, and I'm not a perma bear. I actually think in the years ahead, equities are going to go a lot higher. U.S. equities will go a lot higher, but I know they don't go in a straight line. And because we are now at the extremes on everything, we're on the extreme low in the VIX and kind of extreme high, you know, asset markets are back at their highs. Sentiment is super high. You know, there's no fear in the market. I feel like we need to have some kind of a pullback to either justify these cuts that now everybody expects or mm-hmm. to provide the fuel then to rocket to really new all-time highs. Because we're kind of back at the highs, but we're really not at new highs, right? And so, you know, it's kind of fascinating to me that two years, if we would have done this, and maybe we did, I can't remember. If we would have been talking two years ago, asset prices are basically where they were two years ago. Um. And but interest rates have now been reset from zero to five and a half percent. And if you if you look at crypto, if you look at Bitcoin, if you look at gold, if you look at equities, you look at oil, you look at um, the home builders, 
you look at all these different asset classes, they're all within 10% of where they were two years ago at this time. But yet interest rates have gone from zero to five and a half. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's possible that we move higher next year, but I don't think we can do it in a straight line. I think we need to have a pretty hard pullback to kind of reset expectations and, and, and justify mm-hmm. the rate hikes. And so I'm, I'm, I, I think things have just gotten way ahead of themselves here. Is it is it possible, Brent, that the, you know the real economy and the financial economy have decoupled to an extent that you could see asset prices continuing to climb, but there's some activity in the real economy, whether it's like the housing market or maybe the jobs market, I'm not sure, credit markets in general, consumer credit markets, that would trigger Powell to cut rates because of what he's seeing in the real economy, despite the market flying and and some asset prices rising. Is that a possibility? I I think that's possible. Uh, But again, I, I, I I don't think that they are so unattached to each other that we can just have asset prices flying with unemployment rising. Okay. At, at least not while they are still in a tightening bias. Now, mm-hmm. if they switch to QE or start cutting aggressively and stop doing QT, then I think that that is very possible, um, you know, asset prices. But then we're back in an inflationary environment, likely, as opposed to either stagflation or deflation. Remember, what they're, what the Fed is trying to do, they're trying to tamp down inflation. Um, and, and they, 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 they were very aggressive early on. And that's given them the, the latitude to now slow down and kind of this glide path into the, into the stop of hikes. Um, but if they get too easy too quick, it could reaccelerate those, um, inflationary pressures. And that is the last thing that Fed, or that that's the last thing that Powell wants. Powell is super concerned about his legacy. He doesn't want to be. You know, the Arthur Burns, the guy who presided over the Fed during the great inflation of the 70s. Mm-hmm. He wants to be remembered as the tough guy like Volcker, who, who tamed inflation and brought, you know, sanity back to the markets. And I, I give the guy credit. He, he, he kind of messed up in 20 to 21. Um, but over the last two years, I, I, I think he's done. I don't know what else he could have done mm-hmm. that he didn't do that would have served him better. Now, again. I'm actually not somebody who likes central bankers in the first place. So anybody out there who's saying they shouldn't exist and he should just, he shouldn't be messing with the economy. I tend to agree with you, but the reality is, is he does exist and he does mess with the economy. So if you're, if you're, if you are measuring him on the basis of what he is supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. based on the fact that his job does exist, I I think that he's, he's done a pretty good job of it. Now, the other thing I'll say is I don't expect it to be as easy next year as it was this year. I do think that, you know, it's too early to give him a hundred percent, you know, A and, you know, award him the Nobel Prize. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he's he's kind of accomplished when two years ago, nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that he could take rates to five and a half percent without crushing the economy in the process and without crushing asset prices in in the process. Now, I think there was probably two years ago, there's probably people that were bullish because he wouldn't be able to do it and he would end up having to go back to QE or cut. But I don't, I don't know anybody that, that thought that asset prices would be, that he would take rates from zero to five and a half percent and asset prices would all be right where they were two years ago. I mean, we, it's, it's really kind of fascinating to me. It's, it's kind of like the great reset, except for the great reset is not the monetary system. It's interest rates from zero to five and a half percent. Yet asset prices are all right where they were. And so we, now we get to do the next two years all over again, but 
we've got uh you know the interest rates have swung on that pendulum instead of being way low now they're up, they're up pretty high or at mm-hmm. least high relative to where they were two years ago so then just to loop back to you know where we started you know clients are asking at Citigroup who's going to buy all of this I mean there's been a, a lack of buyers at recent treasury auctions that's made headlines you know how severe is that Brent like is that you know a a problem with some legs with longevity and if if so who are the buyers of these treasuries going to be the 20 20 trillion over the next decade well so there's a couple things i'd say there is you're you're right on a relative basis the recent treasury auctions have been a little bit light as far as the bid to cover so whenever there's a treasury auction let's say they're going to auction off a billion dollars worth of treasuries they, they they people bid on those institutions around the world bid on those and typically, if they auction off a billion dollars, there's two and a half billion dollars worth of interest. So two and a half times the interest as there is uh, being auctioned off. Now, in the last couple meetings, or I'm sorry, in the last couple auctions, that bid to cover has been a little uh, lower than it previously was. And the interest rate at which they wanted to get wasn't quite as as, as robust as what they wanted. But um, but but I think that's important to understand is like there's there's not a there's not a situation where where they're trying to sell a billion dollars worth of treasuries and only 500 billion of people or you know they're not trying to sell a billion dollars worth of treasury and 500 million shows up for auction yeah. they're all oversubscribed and so i would say that's important to keep in mind the other thing i would say is the fed, they could always if they if there ever was a danger of the fed of the treasury not being able to sell the bonds, the Fed would go back to QE. That would be one way. Mm-hmm. But the other thing they can do is they can mandate that the banks increase their capital and or capital ratios and they have to buy more treasuries. They mm-hmm. could mandate that you and I, well, not you, you're, you're, you're Canadian, but they could mandate that, you know, people in their IRAs and their 401ks have to hold a minimum amount of treasuries. And I know a lot of people are saying, yeah, but that's basically just monetizing the debt. And I, yes, I agree with you, but this already happens in other places around the world. This, it's not like the U.S. is inventing this idea. And then the other thing is, you know, the, the, the reality is, and I know there's a lot of people who don't like this, but the reality is, is that the U.S. dollar is still the global reserve currency. And if you are operating on the global stage as some kind of a corporate entity or an institution or an endowment, Somebody who has a large amount of capital that they're trying to allocate or buy things or invest things, you still need U.S. dollars to operate on the global stage. And the and, and countries around the world, they still primarily save in U.S. treasuries. Now, they've been buying more gold recently. I fully agree with that. And I think gold's going to go much, much higher in the years ahead as a result. But they own a lot more U.S. treasuries than they do any other treasury out there. And so I think there still will be demand for treasuries from, from the rest of the world. Now, will, will, will the U.S. have to pay a higher interest rate? Very possibly. I don't deny that. But then the flip side of it is that, and, and I, listen, I understand why you asked the question. This is a big question. It's very important. It's very important to understand these things. But all the other countries are going to have to go through the same thing, right? Europe's going to have to issue more debt. Japan's going to have to issue more debt. China's going to have to issue more debt. Who's going to buy all their debt? Right. And so it, it it really is a relative game. In other words, I won't sit here and say that the U.S. does not have challenges. The U.S. has enormous challenges. But the idea that the U.S. may not be able to sell its bonds, mm. but Italy will be able to or right. Turkey will be able to or Brazil will be able to or Australia or China or Japan. It's not that 
and this is kind this kind of goes in line with you know what we were talking about earlier about a sovereign debt crisis. Uh, a sovereign debt crisis comes when they can't roll the debt anymore, right? And and I I put the U.S. in there. The U.S. will have challenges, but the whole world will have challenges. And so, and when the whole world has challenges, it, these asset allocators who who allocate capital will choose the least bad one, the cleanest, dirty shirt. And you know, you or I as an individual, if we don't like the market, if we don't like the environment, we can we can cash out. We can just sit in cash or we can go buy gold or we can go buy Bitcoin and just kind of sit on the sidelines for a year or two and kind of come back when sanity is returned. But the big asset allocators, they don't have that choice. They don't, you know, the chief investment officer of these big endowments, these big pension funds, these central banks, they don't have the ability to go to their investment committee and say, you know what, we're just going to sit in cash for the next two years. It just doesn't work like that. They they are going to buy treasuries. They're going to buy gold. They're going to, you know, they're, you know, the Swiss national bank buys Technology stocks, you know, so but the point is that money is going to go somewhere. And if we get back into a deflationary environment or some kind of an environment where markets need support and central banks start printing their currencies again or or injecting liquidity into the market, then that capital can be used to, you know, buy treasuries. So my point is, is I think it's a good question. I think it's, I think it's important to understand the dynamics, but it's a really, really important. Even if you think it's ridiculous, it's really important to understand the uh, the relative nature of capital markets, especially on a, when you have a global economy. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I appreciate that answer. So when people ask the question, you know, what would happen in the event of a full blown crisis in the U.S. Treasury market, the answer might be, well before that, you're going to see a full-blown crisis in the Italian debt market and the German debt market, the Chinese debt market. And that's actually going to cause a ton of demand for US treasuries because those ships are sinking super fast and people want to go to the biggest ship in, in the sea, correct? That, that That's right. And, and the other thing I would say is that higher US yields and I always, I always have to be careful how I say this because I don't want people to misinterpret what I'm saying. Higher U.S. yields, I'm not saying they're not a problem, but the U.S. does have the ability to print dollars, right? We're the only country that can do that. Higher U.S. yields also mean higher yields around the world because everybody funds themselves in dollars. So when yields go up in the U.S., it's not just raising rates on the United States. It's raising rates on the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the world can't print the currency needed to service that debt or to pay off that debt. The U.S. can. So in a very long term period, that will be very bad for the dollar. But over a relative short period of time, it can actually benefit the US and the US dollar because they have the ability to pay their debts. The rest of the world doesn't have the ability to pay their debts. They can't print the dollars to do it. They end up having to print more of their currency to exchange for dollars to be able to do it. And then their currency falls versus the dollar, even though the dollar may be falling versus gold or something else. And so, and this is how I think this that we get into one of these sovereign debt crises. The other thing I would say is higher U.S. yields drive capital in the United into the United States and into the Treasuries market. And just look at the last couple of months; Treasuries have rallied dramatically because everybody keeps buying Treasuries. Because two months ago, there was a chart going around a couple of months ago that showed that the the ten year rate on U.S. Treasury was now in line with emerging markets. 
Now that chart that was going around, I don't know if you saw it or not, it's a little misleading because most emerging markets were still trading higher than US Treasuries. But the point is, is that the, the gap had narrowed dramatically. And, and the point I made at the time was like, this is a nightmare for emerging markets. And the reason is, is because if you can buy a US Treasury that yields 5%, why would you buy a Philippine Treasury that yields five and a half? Mm. Right. Or why would you buy why would you buy a, a a sovereign from an emerging market who has a history of, you know, default and, and a history of inflation and a history of, you know, bad politics? Why would you buy that over a U.S. Treasury if the U.S. Treasury is, you know, yielding the same thing? And, and the, the reality is, is you wouldn't. And so if 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 U.S. yields do stay high and they stay high, you know, somewhat relative to to other countries, that ends up being a nightmare for the other countries because it deprives those other countries of funding. And though, again, everybody needs funding. It's not, if, if there was a situation where the U.S. was now in the situation it is and the rest of the world, for some reason, had been managing their finances very well for the last 20 years and was in a good, good fiscal position and they were not running budget deficits, then that would actually be a great opportunity for the rest of the world to rise versus the United States. But that, that's just not the case. Um, all the other countries are running budget deficits as well. All the other countries have debts that they can't pay off as well. And so you get into this kind of the silly relative game. And, and listen, I, I admit that it's absurd. I admit that it's silly, but it, it's reality. And and because I manage other people's capital, I have to deal with reality. Even though I think it's ridiculous, it is what it is. And, and that that's the game I have to play. Yeah, no, I, I like your take. And, and uh, I like how you bring things into relative uh, context frequently, you know, because you can isolate these events, right? As you said, and say, oh, you know, yeah. there's you know cataclysmic uh, debt event occurring in the United States. Well, it's like, yeah, well, if they're having trouble servicing their debt at these rates, that problem is paralleled in dozens yep. of neighboring countries and they have fewer options. So those problems are actually amplified because of their inability to print the currency and paper over that. Right. Um What's your take, just just maybe on this, what's your take on Argentina right now, recently devalued the currency by 50%? Um, what should people know and, and, and what's the significance, Brent? I'm glad you asked me because I actually went to Argentina this summer. And if, if anybody hasn't been there, I, 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 it's one of the greatest trips I've ever been. Just had a fantastic time. And part of the reason we went there is we had never been there and we'd heard great things about it. But the other reason we went there is I knew they were kind of going through this and I kind of wanted to see it in person. And it was really fascinating. Um, you know, the official rate when I went there was 250 to one on the Argentinian peso. But that's the official rate. If you went to the bank and exchange your currency, that's what you'd get. But if you went to a Cueva, which is just a little dealer on the street in the black market, it was 500. So the official rate was half of what the actual rate was. And so, you know, the government was very trying to not devalue. Um, that was, that was over, that was in July, you know, a month ago, it was, you know, down to like uh, 800 or something, you know, the official rate was 500 and the blue rate is what they call the, the, the black market rate was like eight or 900. So it had devalued even more. So Millet, who is the, the president of Argentina, he got elected and he got elected because he was very much, you know, he's going to do away with all the corruption and he's going to destroy the central bank. And he talked about dollarizing the economy. The one thing I would say that maybe people don't realize is that, and uh, it's not that people in Argentina don't buy gold and silver and Bitcoin because they do, but every, some people do that, but everybody 
literally everybody in Argentina buys dollars. As soon as they get their paycheck and pesos, they exchange it for dollars. And the biggest uh, stash of physical dollars outside the United States is in Argentina. Really? Any transaction, any transaction that's more than a couple thousand dollars, you know, a car, a furniture, a house, it's taking place in U.S. dollars. It's not even taking place. So, so Millet has talked about dollarizing the economy. Um, what he's really said is pretty interesting. And one that I would favor is that he thinks that it would be great if you had competing currencies. You know, I'm, he, in other words, he's not going to officially say what the currency is. Um, he would like the market to choose. And I, I think that's a pretty, uh, that's how I would like things to happen. I, I like free markets. Now he's got huge challenges. I'm in, I'm not saying that I, I'm actually pulling for him, but he, you know, his dream was to win. He won. And now his nightmare has begun because mm. in order to kind of get rid of all the bad debts, he's got to devalue the currency. So he devalued it the other night by 50%. It's still now the dollar blue rate though is like at 1100. So he hasn't even gotten to the black market rate, he's probably going to have to devalue again. Um, but if he were to devalue again, and then let's say he were to dollarize, you know, make the dollar, like peg the Argentine peso to the dollar. The reason that would benefit Argentina, at least for a while, maybe not forever, but for a while, is that it would stabilize their currency. One of the reasons that nobody, not nobody, but the reason they have had a lack of investment in Argentina is you just couldn't trust the currency. You know, nobody, if, if you want to go, if you go buy real estate in Argentina and then, you know, let's say the, uh, the real estate goes up 20%, but the currency goes down 50%, you still lost money. And so because nobody could trust the government, nobody could trust the currency mm. that would, it, it kept people from investing there. So if he could stabilize the currency in some way and attract foreign capital into Argentina, and if they could get rid of all these debts that they have, or at least reset them to a level that is now manageable, Argentina could be fantastic. They've got incredible natural resources, uh, incredible people. Incredible, you know, it's one of the safest places in the world. You know, from from a from a outward uh, threat. You know, you've got the Atlantic Ocean protecting you on one side, and then the Andes protecting you on the other. They've got more fresh water yeah. than anywhere in the world. Great farmland. Um, so, but the point is, is they they have huge opportunity. My fear is that he ends up only kind of going halfway with what he said. I think if he tries to go halfway, the the other politicians and the Congress will just eat him alive. I, I think the only way that he even has somewhat of a hope is if he just goes in there and takes a hatchet to everything and really, really, you know, cuts and and listen, the Congress that is there. And the bureaucracy and the corruption, they're not just going to let him do it, right? They're, they're going to fight him the whole way. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say that I don't think he can go halfway. I think he's got to go full on in order to have any chance at all. And I don't think it's going to be easy at all. Uh, but, you know, I'm pulling for the guy. And by full on, you mean full on dollarizing the Argentina? Well, dollarizing, you know, cutting cutting the budget deficit, you know, cutting yeah. government. Can, like I, can I ask, started, like what? Yeah. Because sure. the way you outline Argentina, you make a really bullish case, right? The geopolitics are great between the Andes and the Atlantic yeah. Ocean, heavy with natural resources, access to clean water, safe. You know, you were just yeah. there. Uh, my wife spent a year in Argentina, loved it. S same thing. And she was in BA, you know, big city. It's got its mm -hmm. dangers, but she had a great time. And, sure. and, and all of this. Why is Argentina always at the front of the conversation when it comes to, you know, in inflation disaster? Well, I think partly because of the corruption that exists, there's really only been one political party, the parent, the parentists. Um, you know, th there's been a couple opposition parties, but they're very small. 
And once corruption takes hold of a country, the people in power don't have an incentive to change things. They have an incentive to, you know, again, show, show me the incentives and I'll show you the result, right? The people running things had great incentive to keep it the way it was because they would keep all the money and the people down below wouldn't. And they, you know, they would run these big budget deficits and they would get all the cream at the top and everybody else would just lose value on the currency. And, you know, it's, and I think, uh, and that's just, this lasted for a long time. And, and, it, and it's because it's just kind of so endemic uh, in the country. So you need, and that's, it's kind of like de-dollarization. And I don't know if we're going to talk about that or not, but the idea that you can de-dollarize a little bit at a time, it just doesn't work mm. because the markets will punish you and there will be, you know, things that fight back against you and the, the entrenched interests will not let it happen. The only way to really do it is just do it all at once, pull the Band-Aid off and be done with it. And pulling that Band-Aid off, you're probably going to pull the stitches out as well and you're probably going to be bleeding on the floor and you're going to have to survive that for maybe a year. But if you can get past that year of just absolute torture, then you've got a clean slate ahead of you, mm. right? And so I think that's what Argentina has tried to just very slowly kind of slowly take the Band-Aid off when really they just need to rip the whole thing off, have the depression for 12 months. And, and listen, it will. and that's this is the fear. It's like if he actually goes through with what he says, a lot of people are going to just – they're going to be hurt. Both economically and socially, and it'll, it'll it'll be a nightmare, but it'll clear the decks, and then everything can grow after that. And I think, but but I think that's what's needed. And you know, the reality is, is that's why it hasn't happened in the United States. That's why it hasn't happened elsewhere. It's most people they say, oh yeah, we don't want these stupid politicians. But at the end of the day, if their business goes under and they they want the bailout, right? If the government offers them money, they're going to take it, yeah, because they're scared. And, yeah. and it makes sense, but but that you know, and that that's what Millet's got to deal with. You know, to do what he wants to do, he's going to have to economically hurt a lot of people. Now he ran on that, and the people that voted for him kind of know it, but they haven't had to actually go through it yet, right? And that that's where it's going to get tricky. And and what this, this is the same thing for any other countries that are trying to de-dollarize. You know, they try they try to do these little things where they can you know, set up trade agreements with one another country, or maybe they start nationalizing their gold reserves. But the problem is, is when you do this a little bit, a few people get hurt and they start pushing back politically, you know, you become unpopular and it's hard to see it through because it's one thing to say, it, it's another thing to actually live through it. And so, um, you know, saying something is one thing, actually being able to pull it off and Im implement these changes is, is quite another. Yeah. So we'll just have to wait and see. And if, if, uh, yep. Mule has the stones or is altruistic enough to, uh, cast his reputation aside, at least short term yep. right, to, to do the right thing, which I don't know. I don't know many politicians. Yeah, the, sh the, the short answer is I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest there right now, but I'm yeah. watching it very closely and you know, maybe they get another devalue. Maybe he get, maybe he starts to make some progress. It, it starts to get pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned de-dollarization, maybe as a, a segue towards that conversation, we'll touch on the gold market real quick. Looks like central banks are on pace to buy another thousand tons uh, this year. So, you know, close to another record, not quite a new record. I think last year it was like 1200 tons over a rolling 12 month period. Anyways, lots and lots of gold being bought up by central banks. What do you make of that? Is that symbolic yeah. of a bigger trend? And, and what do you want to say about that, Brent? Well, a couple of things. I think it is symbolic of a bigger trend. I think central banks around the world know 
that we potentially have this this this, this looming debt crisis. They, you know, in many ways, I think central banks hold. I, th- I think central banks hold gold for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think they see it as insurance, just the same way maybe you and I do. Uh, I think one of the reasons they hold it is because if they hold it, they can control it because nobody else has it, right? So it's like if you put somebody in prison, you control them. You know, even if you're not planning to do anything with them, just the fact that they you have control of them keeps them from mm-hmm. other people being able to to use it. Um, and the other thing is, I think I don't think countries around the world are buying gold because they're worried about the U.S. dollar. Okay. I think they're buying gold because they're worried about their own local currencies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. again, the dollar's yeah. down. You know, dollar's kind of flat, maybe down a couple percent for the year, and it's down over the last couple of days, you know, a couple percent. But, you know, it's still up versus over the last couple of years, it's up dramatically versus all the other currencies in the world. And so the idea that all these central banks are rushing to buy gold because they're so worried about the U.S. dollar, I think they're buying gold because they're worried about their own currencies. They know what problems they have. They know they're going to have to, like, print more of their own currencies to try to fight the effects of this. And, you know, they want to have an insurance policy and kind of a steady reserve, just like everybody else does. Um, and so I, I kind of, I, I would say is if we get into a severe debt crisis, it will not surprise me at all if some of these countries end up having to sell their gold to, op- to continue operating on the global stage. Now, I'm not saying that all the central banks are gonna come out and sell all their gold, I'm just saying part of the reason that you own gold, part of the reason that I own gold is that if a crisis ever develops and that is the most liquid thing, mm-hmm. I can use that to get through the crisis. Yeah. Same thing for a country. You know, again, I don't think countries want a gold standard. If countries wanted a gold standard, they would have a gold standard. But I think they want currencies that they can control. But, you know, if, if, if they get into trouble, I don't think that they're against using their gold reserves because that's why they have them to begin with. Now, I want to say, like, I think gold's going to $5,000 over the next probably five years. Now, I don't know if it's going to go right there tomorrow. I think recently um, sentiment got way too high again. Positioning got pretty stretched. And I wasn't surprised at all to see this pullback over, when you, over the last When you say weeks. recently, you mean, okay, yeah, like last uh, couple weeks. Over the last, oh, well, over the, you know, just think about it. In, in October, gold was around 1800 And yeah. as recently as a week ago or 10 days ago, it hit 2150 or whatever it was. Yeah. Overnight. Uh, now it pulled back pretty hard from there. Um, and then we had a really good bounce over the last couple of days. I still think, listen, I own gold. I think everybody should, if you don't own gold, you should absolutely go buy some gold, but I don't plan on it going to $5,000 next year and changing my whole life. I, I, I think gold will be there to kind of protect what I already have. I don't think it's going to make me rich. Um, and so I look at gold a little different than most people. And so I think it's important to own gold, but I would expect gold to go lower before it goes higher. Um, you know, I think sometime in the early part of the year, maybe we can buy it 1900, 1800. If you get these pullbacks, I would be a buyer of it. Again, I, I can't stress enough how bullish gold I am over the long term, but I just don't, I don't think we're going to 2300 by March or something like that. Now, if we do, if we do, I'll raise my hand and say, you know what? We did. And that's why I own it. And, but I, I don't mind being wrong if gold goes up. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. And I like your take on gold. I think that's the right take on gold and should be communicated to people more frequently. It's, it's not an asset you own to, to make a pile of money. That's not where you look for the gain, right? But it's where you look to preserve purchasing power and hold that option on liquidity. I mean, that's how I think about gold. It's an option on liquidity, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to think of it. Yep. 
And your take that, because uh, often, as you know, pundits in macro will say, look at the central bank gold buying. This is obviously uh, a signal that they distrust the US dollar. And you're saying maybe, but more likely, it's yeah. a symbol that they're starting to distrust their own local currency. Absolutely. Framed in the context of our last 30 minutes of conversation, that's kind of the logical psychology yeah. behind that transaction. The, the, the other thing that I kind of get a kick out of is I remember 10 years ago um, when gold was at, was I guess it was about the same price and you know it, it had made a pretty good move over the previous five years, let's call it. Well, from 2002 to 2012, gold did very well, right? And I remember during that time period, a lot of people would refer back to early 2000, the early 2000s and say that's when central banks were selling gold. It was such an obvious signal, right? Mm. Well, now central banks are buying gold and everybody's, well, it's such an obvious signal. Now, why was it such an obvious signal 20 years ago when they were selling it? Why is it also, it's the complete opposite. Why, why, are, why, why were central banks so stupid 20 years ago, but now they're so smart? When they're still run by this kind of the same people, so I kind of get a kick out of the, you know, the central banks are doing it, so you have to do it. When uh, um, it was yeah. it was the exact opposite twenty years ago. But listen, mm-hmm. I, I think it is indicative that, and, and you know, the the continued demand out of Asia uh, for, for 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 gold. I think gold is going a lot higher for a lot of the reasons that we've discussed. I just whenever sentiment gets really high on something, I, I automatically kind of just kind of like recoil because. It just it when you buy something that it's at its all time high and everybody's losing their minds and sentiment is through the, the roof, mm-hmm. it almost never works out in the okay. short term. Yeah. And I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying that's typically not the time to mm-hmm. to go buy a bunch of it. Well, you're right. Yeah, because you're right. Bubbles can inflate a lot larger yeah. than people ever think they can yeah. simultaneously. The investor's job is to buy things when they're cheap and sell those things when exactly. they become expensive, not the opposite. You mentioned uh, demand coming out of Asia. So a couple like recent stats I saw here, which I don't know if they're surprising. 70% of consumers aged between 18 and 40 are purchasing gold jewelry in China. So, the, you know, there's a, a handful of little data points here. Uh, people between the ages of 18 and 24 are starting to acquire gold jewelry at record paces. This is young Chinese citizens, maybe yeah. abandoning the property market and saying gold is the new real yeah. estate because you know that, that's kind of how real estate has been treated in China and buying super small denominations like gram marbles, for example. Yeah. And uh, this has become a social media trend now in China, just like maybe you know Bitcoin's been over here. Any any take on that, Brent? Yeah, I think it kind of relates to what we were talking about. I mean, if I lived in China and I was a Chinese citizen, my currency was the yuan, I'd be buying the hell out of gold as well. I mean, Mm. I don't, again, I don't think the average Chinese citizen is buying gold because they're worried about the U.S. dollar. Most of them are trying to get their money outside the United States and get it or get it outside of China and get it into dollars. Yeah. Um, I think the reason they're buying gold is because they know that China has enormous problems. They, They, you know, Everybody's talking about the the Fed now moving towards an easing policy. Well, the China's had an easing policy for two years now, and their currency continues to fall. Mm. And so I think you know, and and their real estate market is under real pressure. Uh, they've got all kind of problems over there, and so you know, it doesn't surprise me that a that a Chinese citizen wants to own gold, considering all the challenges they have. But again, I don't think it's I don't I don't think the average Chinese citizen is sitting over there saying. Oh man, the U.S. is totally screwed. Let's go buy some gold. I think they're saying, "Wow, we've got some big challenges here at home, and our currency is probably not going to hold up." Let's go buy some gold. Okay, so 
I know you read the Twitter comments. I love watching you spar on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. So um, thinking through our conversation over the last 45 minutes, you're now, um, you're an anti-US dollar listener and you're saying, but Brent, what about XYZ? What about XYZ? So let's let's get to some of those comments yeah. in advance. Most common pushback that you're going to get to a conversation like we just had, you know, top one or two pushback points, what would they be? What do you hear most frequently and how yeah. would you clap back at them? Well, I think a lot of it is who's going to buy the debt. You know, they're, they're going to have to go back to Q, you know, they're going to have to go back to QE and that will be bad for the dollar. And listen, you know, if if the Fed does all these cuts that that, that are now forecast, and the ECB and the you know the the BOJ and some of the other central banks lag the U.S. in moving to easy monetary policy, then I would expect the dollar to go down into the 90s. You know, maybe it goes to 98, maybe it goes to 97, and and you know in that scenario, maybe equity prices continue to run. I cannot. Rule that out, and you know I have I have I have positions in all these assets that if they continue to go up, you know we'll make money. My whole thing with the the dollar is really, you can't just assume that it's going to go lower because the system is designed in a way that when bad things happen, the dollar goes higher. And I I have a chart that goes back twenty five years. You can go back further than that if you want. Every time there's a crisis, every time there's a global slowdown, every time there's some kind of geopolitical event, the dollar goes higher, not lower. So if you don't think there's going to be a crisis in the years ahead, then maybe the maybe you think the dollar is going lower. But if you think we're going to have a crisis, the dollar is probably going higher. If the dollar is going lower, that means there's plenty of liquidity. If the dollar is going lower. That means dollars are plentiful. There's no real deleveraging going on. And so... If the dollar's going lower, that's everything's okay. And I think the most important thing is that to understand is when you see that you know the Fed is going to ease policy, or when you see that the Fed or the Treasury is going to have to sell all this debt, or when you see that you know this country is now trying to de-dollarize, it's not that you should ignore them. It's just that you shouldn't jump immediately to the conclusion that the dollar's dead, de-dollarization is here, and China and Russia are going to take over. And that's where I feel like when I talk to a lot of people, that they jump to extremes, right? And the reality is, is that the system is designed in a way that the dollar will be the last U.S. current, the last fiat currency to fall. Now, it doesn't mean that gold won't go to ten thousand dollars and Bitcoin won't go to a hundred thousand, and you know, real assets go up a lot. So I'm I'm not saying that, but I'm saying on a relative basis. The system is designed in a way that almost nothing is a guarantee in this world, but almost guarantee is that the U.S. dollar is the last fiat to fall. And because the whole world borrows in dollars, it does matter when the dollar fiat goes up versus the euro fiat or the Japanese fiat or the Chinese fiat. So one, sometimes people will say, why did, if, if I own gold, why does fiat versus fiat matter? Well, it does matter because it, it, you know, when when the dollar goes up versus these other currencies, that's when you get a crisis. And just go back and look at any crisis and look and see what gold did during the crisis. During the liquidity phase of the mm -hmm. crisis, gold gets liquidated, just like everything else. Everything happened else. in 2020, happened in 2008, happened in 2000. Again, it happens all the time. Now it recovers typically faster than everything else. And so, you know, if you have the staying power. To outlast that crisis and you have liquidity from some other source, then that's great. But if you don't have liquidity from some other source, 
and you're in gold and gold miners and gold goes down 20% and the miners go down 40%. And now you have to liquidate some of your gold or liquidate some of your miners in order to pay your mortgage or buy food or meet whatever obligation you have. It has consequences. And so I, 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 I don't know if I answered your question or not. I might, I might have gone too far, but but that that's that's really what the whole milkshake theory is about. The milkshake theory is really about thinking about what actually happens during a, a sovereign debt crisis. What? How do things move from one to another? You know, not what you want to see happen, but what actually happens. What do other players in the game do, and what can't happen? In other words, the it's really a way to kind of refute, in my opinion, a lot of the de-dollarization nonsense. And it's not that the de-dollarization attempt is nonsense, but just because, you know, Ghana says we are now going to sell our oil for gold and that is going to reprice our currency and it's going to be the death of the dollar. I mean, come on. I mean, and so a lot of times I just I feel like I need to refute all these silly arguments for why this time really it is the end for the dollar. Because if you believe that debt matters, then you almost have to believe that the dollar goes higher. Yeah, you know, and, and it's it's we're we are meaning making machines, as they say. And so you see a deal like Ghana wants to sell its oil for gold and we extrapolate all this meaning to it, right? What does that say right. about the US dollar when in reality it might just be that Ghana, like a lot of countries, wants more gold in their treasury? And that's one way they yeah. can get it, right? They got oil, right. they need yeah. gold, right? Um right. one one way. All right. Look, I know, I know you got to run, uh, Brent. This has been fun. Always good having you on the show. And you're going to be in Vancouver in January at the Vancouver. Yeah, looking forward to it. I, I, I love coming up there and seeing you and a lot of our. You know, we have a lot of friends that come there every year, so it's always like a nice little reunion. Yeah, it is tons of fun. Uh, where can I point people today that want to hear more from you? I know you get your podcast yeah. now. Uh, where should we point them, Brent? So we, my friend John and I have our own podcast. It's called Milkshakes, Markets, and Madness. That can be looked up on YouTube, uh, on Twitter. It's just at Milkshakes Pod. Um, I can be found at, at Santiago AU Fund or just type in Santiago Capital on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. Um, like you said, I'll be in Vancouver. So I hope people come to Vancouver and, um, you know, enjoy the show. And I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet, but I'll figure out something. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to hosting you, man. So yeah, check out Santiago Capital uh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, my wife just read The Alchemist again, and she finished the book. Uh, and, and I was like, oh, my, my buddy has a fund named after the guy yeah. in the book. And she's like, she just she argued against me. She's like, the guy doesn't have the boy doesn't have a name. The boy's name is not Santiago. And she because the whole book, you know, yeah. His name is mentioned once, one time right. on this page. One right? time. She and on the very one. first page. On the, exactly. I think maybe the very very first sentence, maybe. It, it is. It's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. All right, man. It's been fun. Thanks again, Brent. I'll cool. see you in uh, Vancouver in January. All right. Thanks, man. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.